May the Holy Spirit of God, who first inspired the words of Scripture, now bring those words and the God of, which, of whom they speak to life in our minds, our hearts, our lives, in this place today. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, with all that's happened in our service so far this morning, you're expecting me to talk about the Holy Spirit. I'd like to begin, however, someplace else. I'd like to uh, spend a little time celebrating some of the stupendous achievements of the human race. I'm thinking of some of the great works of art that have been uh, painted or fashioned in some other kind of way. I'm thinking of the great works of literature that uh, the human race has produced. I'm thinking of the great musical achievements of which some of us are capable. I'm thinking of the great edifices, the great buildings and structures that have been designed and built. I'm thinking of the knowledge that we have acquired about our own bodies. I'm thinking about the ways in which many diseases have been overcome by immunization programs and uh, improvements in hygiene, development of antibiotics, and so on and so forth. I'm thinking of the way in which even deserts have been tamed so that we can bring forth uh, uh, fruitful crops out of deserts. I'm thinking that we have climbed, scaled the highest peaks. I'm thinking that we have visited our nearest neighbour in space, the moon. We have, with our telescopes, explored the furthest reaches of outer space. And with our microscopes, explored inner space as well. Truly great uh, is the record of human achievement, the results of human creativity, ingenuity, knowledge, and wisdom. But there is one path that remains stubbornly closed to human inquiry. There is one horizon beyond which we cannot see. Now, apparently, if you stand, if I, as high, height of five foot ten, stand on a beach and look at the horizon, I can see just under four miles. If I stood on a tower a hundred foot tall, I could see about twelve miles. And you can liken that, if you like, to what we, how far we can see without much knowledge or standing on top of a great deal of knowledge. Either way, you still can't be see beyond the horizon. You can't see beyond uh, uh, that, that distant point. And if what we are seeking for does not lie beyond that horizon, but comes almost literally from a different world altogether, no matter how far you build on your knowledge, you will never see what you're looking for beyond the horizon. As it is written in last Sunday morning's Bible passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 21, the world 
through its wisdom, with all its achievements, did not know God, and does not know God, and will not know God. That has been a key point of the message of Paul so far. That knowledge, and I'm not speaking about knowledge about God, but the knowledge of God, not head knowledge, but relational knowledge, is closed to to merely human inquiry. That's the teaching of the Apostle Paul in this scripture. And so we come this morning to, I think, the the fourth installment in our series of messages in this first letter of Paul to the Corinthians. So please do have a Bible open with you. Some key points will be on the screen, but I'm keen for you to check the the details and uh, the context, both now and afterwards. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 to 16, page 1145 in the Church Bibles. And I'm heading this, Wisdom from God. Paul has spoken of the limitations of human wisdom. Now he goes on to say, but there is another kind of wisdom. Did you hear one of the words which Margaret emphasized rightly as she read from this, the word however, in verse 6? Paul has dismissed human wisdom as a path to knowing God. But he says, however, there is a wisdom of God that comes from God. And as he'll go on later to say, in a kind of a mixture of allusions from the Old Testament, in particular from the book of Isaiah and chapter 64, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived the things of God. They are to the human eye invisible, inaudible, unimaginable. This wisdom, Paul is keen to characterize as the wisdom of the cross, foolish and weak as it seems to to the human eye and to the human mind. But in the cross of Christ, Paul has been saying, we find, we learn about both the wisdom and the power of God. And such is the contrast between merely human wisdom and this wisdom, God-given wisdom, that Paul says these remarkably strong words. If the rulers of this age, the rulers of this world, had understood for a moment the cross of Christ, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. If they understood that God's wisdom, what God was doing for a moment, they wouldn't have done it. And what an expression that is. Because crucifixion is not merely one of the most painful of all deaths. It's also the most shameful, the most accursed of deaths. And to, in the single breath, to speak of crucifixion, that kind of execution, and the one who was thus executed as being the Lord of glory, just brings out 
the contrast between what we with our minds can achieve and understand and what God's truth really is. We're speaking then of the wisdom of the cross and having spoken about that, Paul would then go on to say it's a wisdom imparted by the Holy Spirit of God. I've lost count the number of times the Holy Spirit is mentioned from verse 10 onwards. Just like at the beginning of chapter 1, once Paul had mentioned Jesus, he couldn't stop mentioning him. And now, as soon as Paul mentions the Spirit, he can't stop mentioning the Spirit. So, let's see from this passage what the Holy Spirit does in relation to the wisdom of God, the wisdom of the cross. First of all, the Holy Spirit searches. Do you see that in verse, the second part of, of, of ten, uh, verse 10b? The, the Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. Then Paul goes on to give a little illustration. He says, humanly speaking, no one knows what's going on in the human mind apart from the human person himself. That was demonstrated in our little uh, sketch earlier. Yeah, we're not actually, not actually not very good at reading one another's minds, knowing what's really going on in one another's minds. Well, let's just, let's just demonstrate it for a moment. I'm going to close my eyes and think of something. And I'll challenge you to think, to work out whether you know what I'm thinking about. So here we go. Okay, I've had a thought. Any takers? (laughs) You'll never get it. You'll never get it. I wasn't at that very moment thinking of God to my shame. I was thinking, I wonder how long it'll be before that aeroplane comes down, because it's been up there a long time now. Do you get it? I don't think so. Just like that, just as only the spirit within a person can accurately reveal what's going on in the heart of that person, so, Paul says, it's only the spirit of God who can reveal the mind of God. And it's the Holy Spirit who does that. Secondly, the Holy Spirit reveals. We have seen that human inquiry, with all its achievements, cannot discover the things of God, cannot find a path to God. It must come entirely from the opposite direction. God must reveal God. And that's the second part of what the Spirit uh, does. Verse 10a, but God has revealed these deep things to us by his spirit. And by the way, with regard to verse 9 and 10, verse 9 is both one of the most beautiful, but also one of the most misquoted verses in the entire Bible. Absolutely beautiful. But so many times when I've heard or seen verse 10 quoted, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. They stop there. But Paul doesn't stop there. He goes on verse 10 to say, but, 
There was even a version of the Church of England funeral service, which had as one of its opening sentences, verse 10, but no, verse, uh, verse 9, but no, verse 10. These things are, as we have said, invisible, inaudible, inconceivable, but God has revealed it to us by his Spirit. Just notice in passing, please, that whereas Paul previously in um, chapter 2 and the end of verse uh, uh, chapter 1 has been, uh, has been speaking of I, I, Paul, he's habitually in this section using the word us. I think a suggestion, indication, that when he says that God has revealed it to us, he's speaking first and foremost of us, the apostolic band that God has revealed definitively through Christ and the apostles, the deep things of God, the truth and the life-giving power of the cross of Christ. The Holy Spirit reveals. He pulls back the curtain so that we can see, know, and understand. Thirdly, the Holy Spirit teaches Remarkable phrase in verse 13. We speak, says Paul, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit. I hadn't realized this until fairly recently. Um, The various passages in the New Testament that talk about the inspiration of Scripture usually refer to the Old Testament Scriptures because the New Testament was still in the process of being written, wasn't it? So in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, all scripture is God-breathed. Paul is thinking first and foremost of the existing scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, quite clearly. What I hadn't realized is that what we have here is perhaps the clearest statement in the entire Bible of the inspiration of the New Testament scriptures. The scriptures as handed down as records of the words and doings of the Lord Jesus Christ and of the spirit-giving teachings of the apostles. And can I say too that Paul is talking here about inspired words. Not simply inspired men and women, or inspired lovely thoughts or ideas, inspired words. So there we have the old-fashioned and sometimes despised doctrine of verbal inspiration. The inspiration, the God-breathedness of the words of Scripture. The Holy Spirit teaches, and he uses words. Many times those words paint pictures and tell stories, but they come in words. But fourthly, the Holy Spirit illuminates. Verse 13 is difficult to, uh, to understand, and uh, translators have found it difficult to interpret. I've gone, for the, for the interpretation, having studied it as carefully as I can, I've gone for the translation that you find in the footnote. Partly because of the context, what else Paul has to say about the Holy Spirit's work. The idea that's going on here is that we have seen that the Holy Spirit searches and reveals and teaches. And that's kind of in the past. Those things have happened definitively already. 
But there is an equivalent work that needs to happen here and now in our hearts and minds. And that is that the Holy Spirit needs to come within us and to bring to life the Word of God. Now, some of you will have uh, had a similar experience to me. That is to say that before you became a Christian, you knew something about the Bible. You knew some of its stories, some of its teachings, some, some of its moral precepts. But then you became a Christian, and they took on a completely different meaning and had a completely different impact on you. What before were simply words on a page and perhaps nice stories that we had learned in Sunday school now had a power, a life-giving power and impact. Did you have that experience when you became a Christian? I certainly did. It becomes a new book. And it becomes a continually renewed book to us as the Holy Spirit brings these truths to life in our hearts and minds and life. The Holy Spirit uh, illuminates interpreting spiritual truths to spiritual men and women. It it takes a work of of the Holy Spirit to bring God's word to us and an equivalent work of the Holy Spirit for us to be able to open our minds and our lives and our hearts to that word and receive it as God's word. So the work of the Holy Spirit in bringing to us and working in us the wisdom of God, a wisdom that the world cannot give and certainly cannot take away from us. So some implications of all of this. I uh, want to apply this in uh, perhaps uh, three different directions, or rather uh, apply it to three different groups of people. Firstly, the spiritual elite. Now, let me ask you a question. Are you the kind of person who thinks yourself better than most other Christians? Do you think you are in uh, a higher category? Do you look down on your fellow Christians and feel yourself superior to them? Do you put yourself on some kind of pedestal? Do you class yourself as being in the premier league of Christian spirituality and those around you, those on your left and right this morning, are in some lower league? No, I didn't think you thought that kind of way. No, I didn't think so. We're far too polite. But the danger of spiritual elitism is still alive and kicking as it has been throughout the the life of the Christian church. This was a big danger going on here, a big reality going on here. When Paul uses words like mature and spiritual, he's almost certainly picking up uh, slogan words from those false teachers who were uh, undermining God's work in the Corinthian church. That idea, uh, that word mature, has this idea of we're mature, we've made it, we've achieved it, we've we've achieved the ultimate. And Paul is saying there is one wisdom, a humble wisdom of the cross, which God has revealed once and for all, that's available to us all. It's not us and them, it's all of us together. Just looking very quickly ahead to chapter 4 and verse 10. Paul, really with biting irony, sarcasm really, uh, outlines this idea that was around. There are two grades of Christians. We, he says, are fools for Christ. 
in your estimation, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, you think, but you are strong. You are honored, we are dishonored. Do you see how Paul is firing back at his uh, opponents and his critics, saying, no, you're wrong to have these two categories, the wise and the foolish, the honored and the dishonored. There is just one. So let us eschew all temptation to, uh, to this kind of elitism, but the church is always at risk from that. In the days of the early Methodists, uh, there was this idea that some Christians achieved um, uh, perfect love, um, and, and others didn't. In the early days of the Keswick movement, there were lots of talk about the higher life, the higher Christian life, as, as, it, as if it were in contrast with the lower life of those ordinary Christians. Uh, uh, our Pentecostal friends tend to talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit as a separate and distinct uh, experience beyond your conversion, beyond being saved. Um, and, uh, and in many other ways, we can divide ourselves into two, two divisions, the higher division and the lower, and Paul will have none of it. Of course, there are degrees of progress in Christian maturity, but there certainly are not two different divisions. Secondly, I want to speak to, or rather about, the well-educated <laughs> Paul has been, uh, has been saying something about human wisdom and then something else about God's wisdom. So does he thereby spurn all human knowledge and achievement? And the answer is no. Paul himself was highly educated both in Jewish knowledge and in Greek knowledge as well. And he uses both of those in his writings. So I'm thinking now of the young person, and you may have one in your family, who is at or about to go off to university, and you're worried, and they're a Christian, that person, that young man, that young woman is a Christian, and you're concerned lest by the time they graduate, they have lost their faith through their education, that their study of chemistry or of cosmology or sociology or psychology or philosophy or, heaven forbid, theology, has actually undermined their faith. Let us, with them, remember that no field of human inquiry, including biblical studies and including academic, the academic study of theology, can neither give nor take away a living faith in Christ. No geographer can show you anywhere on earth where God can be found. No philosopher can argue into, or indeed out of, the kingdom of God. No physician can heal the wounds of the soul. Human inquiry is great. All truth is God's truth. He likes it. Education is good. But remember... Merely human edu education is a dead end as far as knowing God is concerned. And then I'm thinking also at word and spirit. Briefly, let us not ever be a church that either majors on the word of God 
or on the Spirit of God. You know the old saying from the 1970s, well, perhaps you don't, you're too young, where it was said that uh, all word and no spirit, and we dry up, all spirit and no word, and we blow up, word and spirit together, we grow up. And there's some truth in that, quite a lot of truth in that. God's word and God's Holy Spirit walk hand in hand throughout this passage. Indeed, they walk hand in hand throughout Holy Scripture. Let word and spirit walk hand in hand through us today and in the weeks and months to come. Let us be a people of God's word and of God's spirit because God's spirit loves God's word. He inspired it, after all. And finally, two thoughts from this immensely uh, deep and rich passage that really struck me as I close. Firstly, a comment about love. A wonderful definition of a follower of Jesus Christ. We might think from what Paul is saying here is, a person who's a Christian is a person who has real wisdom. Well, yes, that's true. Who has real knowledge. Yes, that's true. But Paul, in a moment, defines the true Christian as the person who loves God. The Christian is the person who loves God. Now, can we be characterized as a people who love God? And then Paul has something equally remarkable to say about glory in verse 7. He casts his mind back to the distant eternal past and sees God's plan. He casts his mind forward to the eternal future and sees glory. But not on this occasion, God's glory. He has a great deal to say about God's glory. But actually on this occasion, our glory. We speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. What a joy What a privilege, what a responsibility to share this knowledge, this wisdom, this truth, all bound up in the humble cross of Jesus Christ and God's life-giving spirit. Amen. And let us pray. Father God, we thank you for your love. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice. Holy Spirit, we thank you for your truth and your life-giving wisdom. Grant us all to live in the light of that wisdom more and more in the coming hours and days and weeks. Amen.